Please turn with me to Ephesians 6, uh, beginning at verse 1. Verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Oh, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your scriptures, to see your truth. You called us to be your children, and you bring us up. You train us for your name's sake. Please do anoint my lips to speak your truth, and please give these your people ears to hear your truth, that our families may keep your ways and do righteousness and justice. All God's people say, please be seated. Well, there is, I think, a great danger every time we gather and you hear a teaching from this pulpit or hear a lecture at a conference as well. The danger that you're going to get another thing to put on your to-do list, another thing you're supposed to do, another thing you feel like you have to do, another thing you don't know how to do. And I definitely don't want to come here today and uh, lay something before you like that and walk away and leave you confused or ill-equipped. So my goal really is that you'd be reminded of a very important task, and it is critical what we'll be talking about, but that you'll be stirred up for the work of hand and be equipped to actually carry it forth. So those are our three simple goals. Whenever I'm on tour with uh, the students on the East Coast, I always start out in our opening orientation with three goals. That they learn something, that they have fun, and everybody get home safely. I haven't had any broken legs thus far, so hopefully we'll fare okay as well. But uh, I do indeed come before you with a significant task. And your first reaction may be, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before, but what's the big deal? Or uh, I don't have the time, or I don't know how, and so uh, why are you uh, burdening me with this? But guess what? This project, I promise, is well within your reach. Uh, You do have the time and the day to do it. Uh, Plus, it's mandatory, so you don't really have an option to get out from before it. So we might as well jump in. And no doubt there will be uh, impediments to remove, Uh, impediments I've seen in my own life, impediments of pride, of lethargy, or of ignorance. And uh, these obstacles and their removal are part of everyday sanctification. So again, you can't avoid them. But without further ado, the grand project I um, want to speak on today is daily family worship. Uh, As we get further into the discussion, you're going to see that the main focus is addressed to fathers. But this doesn't mean that the other probably 93% of you uh, here today are excluded because tune out. Uh, Those of you who are singles or children do need to indeed pay attention. Uh, Singles, if you desire, well, I'll say children, if you desire to be married or have children in the future, uh, your personal daily devotions now are a training ground for that in the future. And uh, what a beautiful thing it would be for your children who are still in your parents' homes to uh, every evening be saying, please, Daddy, uh, won't you lead us in family devotions? and how encouraged he will be to have you asking and be eager for that. So uh, this is a significant task, and I don't want to uh, underestimate it. Uh, I can empathize with the feeling of being overwhelmed with a big endeavor. Uh, When I was in college, it was my uh, junior year, and I had decided to hike the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada uh, the summer after I graduated from college. And I remember thinking, this is an awesome idea. What an amazing thing to be able to take five months walking through some of the most beautiful mountains in the world, all this fresh air and exercise. But at the same time, I was overwhelmed. How am I ever going to accomplish something so big? And I was intimidated, and I was lost. I was lost for direction. But I came upon a book uh, called, uh, helpfully, the PCT Hiker's Handbook, in which the author laid it down very simply. He had a chapter on maps. He had a chapter on food. He had a chapter on creek fords. He had a chapter on bears and mosquitoes and on and on. And so as I read through this, I was like, hey, I can do this. This isn't that big of a deal. Other people have done it before me, and uh, I'll give it a shot. And lo and behold, I did. And uh, that author, he'd written that book after hiking it three times. So, yes, there are people who hike 3,000 miles and then go back and do it again and again. But uh, he obviously did have experience. He was speaking from experience. And I admit I don't have a huge amount of experience leading family worship, just getting some practice more recently. But uh, in preparing for this talk, I had the opportunity to delve into some books by people who do have the experience. 
And there are many of us gathered here today who have years and years of experience. So we can benefit from our brothers' uh, learning and their practice to share with us. But, of course, we all have, very importantly, access to the most important resource of all, and that is the Bible. So let us begin there and get into the verse I read at the beginning. Uh, focusing on Ephesians 6.4, which reads, Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. So the first point is obviously that it's addressed to fathers. And this word uh, is in the emphatic. It would be more properly spoken. Hey, you fathers, listen up, pay attention. It's a command. It's an imperative. Uh, Both parents indeed are given a unique responsibility for raising their children. But yes, fathers specifically are given the headship over that responsibility. And I know it's very easy when you come home from work and you've been Mr. In Charge all day making the decisions and you just want to take it easy and uh, let somebody else take the initiative. But we have to be reminded that's a very dangerous habit to get into uh, because somebody will take that authority either by default or by usurpation, uh, which is especially hazardous when we have children watching and learning by what we do. So fathers do need to be the heads. They do need to be leading. Uh, And why is it that this role is so important? And as we discussed earlier with the covenant heads throughout the covenants of promise throughout the Old Testament, that God makes these covenants with heads of families and households. Uh, He covenanted with Adam and his whole household, which included his wife and his children, indeed all of creation. So when Adam fell, all those covenantally united to him also fell. Uh, God covenanted with Adam and all those in his household Uh, And when God then made that promise about never bringing a flood of waters to destroy the earth, all those under his headship fall within that promise. Uh, Similarly, um, after the time of the patriarchs, we get into the elders of Israel and them stepping forward and leading, speaking for, representing all the people uh, that God was uh, leading. And foremost to us in this age is the fact that Christ is our covenantal head. And us being uh, in him, believing in him, are uh, covenantally under him and thus freed from that covenant with Adam that ultimately leads to death. So the fact of headship is critical for our salvation and indeed is also critical in our families. Well, Paul then, uh, after this opening phrase, gets into an example of how not to do it. So let's look at that. He says, do not provoke your children to wrath. Uh, The standard understanding of this is that fathers should be wary to not pester or nag or otherwise um, excite in their children some animosity wherein the children would sort of reject their parents and thereby also reject God. Uh, The three resources I read, Matthew Henry, John Calvin, and William Hendrickson, all fell along these lines. One saying, do not be impatient with them. Another saying, do not irritate your children by unreasonable severity. And the other do not embitter them. And also the parallel reading in Colossians 3.21, uh, I think, supports this uh, interpretation. Uh, there was another author I read. Um, and actually, for those of you who were at the family conference, there was a resource called Family Worship. It was a book that we republished uh, by uh, Patasic is his last name. It's actually, this is the guy, Mr. Patasic, who gives this interpretation. I'll summarize for you briefly. He said that um, for a father to provoke his children to wrath is to uh, be when a father neglects the proper raising of his child and that child goes awry and is rebellious, is sinful, then provokes God's judgment against that child. But I, in looking at all the instances of the use of that term, provoke your children to wrath, throughout all of Scripture, I don't think that it really adds up. So I think it's better that we fall back to the standard interpretation that I mentioned previously, that a sinful action of parents, that is um, being uh, harsh or um, prodding, abrasive, impatient, severe, those types of actions against a child will cause them to turn away from the parent and also to turn away from God. Well, after giving this example of how not to do it, Paul helpfully introduces a but and gives his positive example, what we're to do, as if he says, don't do this. But do this. He doesn't leave us hanging out there in thin air wondering, well, I don't know what to do now, so help me. He clearly puts it out. And these are the phrases uh, that I want to depend on for today. He says, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Pretty simple, right? Only one thing. Just have to bring them up. And there's just two parts to that, the training and admonition. So let's look at those pieces. Uh, The bringing them up. Uh, Interestingly, this is the same word that Paul used just a half chapter 
well, really five, six verses earlier towards the end of chapter 5. Look with me there at uh, verses 28 and 29. Uh, Here he's speaking of husbands and wives. And he says, husbands ought to love their own wives. I'm sorry, love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own body but nourishes. That's the same word, nourishes. Nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. So that same sacrificial uh, loving action that pastors always talk about at weddings and did we have had as our vows, that same loving action that a husband does do for himself uh, that he should be doing for his wife, that Jesus most certainly does do for the church is what parents are to be doing uh, for their children, that fathers especially should be doing for their children. Well, the second part after the bringing up that nourishing is uh, training. And there's two facets um, I'm sorry, uh, the two facets of the bringing up. One is training. And uh, other places where this word is used in the New Testament, it's often translated as chastening. I think you're going to find these verses familiar, so it's interesting that's the same underlying word. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 11.32, it's written, when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord. And then Hebrews 12.10, for our earthly fathers uh, chastened us. So that's also speaking of fatherly discipline. In Luke 23, verse 16 a pilot there says, I will therefore chastise him, referring to Jesus, and let him go. Uh, there's a second way that it's translated, though, that, that's taught other than the chastening, and that is uh, three instances where it's uh, taught or learned, as, uh, to be learned, studied in something. In Acts 7, verse 22, it says that Moses was learned in the wisdom of the Egyptians. Uh, later in Acts 22, verse 3, Paul says he was taught. So there's this thoroughness of being taught in the law. And then finally in Titus uh, chapter 2 verse 12 it says that the grace of God is teaching us. This is a prolonged repetitive teaching. God's grace is teaching us. So we see that there is definitely that instructive and the corrective element. A repetitive teaching and then the correction that is brought in by the chastening. Uh, The second facet then is admonition. And uh, this word is used twice in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10.11 Uh, All these uh, Old Testament tragedies, as they're uh, listed there, they were written for our admonition. And then in Titus 3.10, we're to reject the device of man after the first or second admonition. So I think that's clear that it's talking about clear warnings. You're to say to somebody, hey, whoa, warning sign, don't run off the cliff. There's a problem here. People in the past have done this. We don't want you to do this. So you're giving a warning to keep them away from uh, imminent danger. So taking these two facets together, the training and admonition, as it's translated in Ephesians 6.4, we see the teaching, uh, what's being taught, what's being learned, the correction that follows from that, and then the warning aspect that's brought in by the admonition. Well, thus far, you're thinking this is probably sounding, sounding a lot like a talk on male headship and family discipleship. Uh, so what does this have to do with family worship? And I say precisely, uh, this is all about uh, father's headship and discipleship, which is why at the beginning I could say I didn't come here to lay something uh, new for your to-do list because you're already doing it, right? Uh, By default, every father here is leading his family, and you're all discipling your children one way or another. The crux of it is are we leading uh, appropriately and biblically? Are we discipling appropriately and biblically? And that's where the family worship really comes in critically. Um, It's fundamental, uh, an imperative uh, throughout Scripture command of God that parents, fathers are to be discipling, to be instructing their children in the ways of God. Uh, This was the case for Abraham. It was the case for Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents. It was the case for the Reformers. And it most certainly uh, is and should be the case for us. Uh, Turn with me then. We'll look briefly at each of these historical examples. Turn with me to uh, Genesis 18. This is a really amazing verse. As I came upon this in my research, I had never, you know, I've read this bunches of times, but never seen it in this context, and there's a lot here. So Genesis 18, verse 19. God says, uh, speaking about Abraham, For I have known him, Abraham, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. 
That's a huge, huge statement. I hope you catch each of those aspects. Here it says that God knows Abraham, and that word for know means to call, to bring him to himself, to reveal himself to him in a saving way. That God called Abraham to himself in order that. So here we're given the whole reason why God called Abraham is in order that Abraham would train his household to keep the way of the Lord, which is then to say to do righteousness and justice. Uh, Notice additionally that last phrase, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Well, what is it that uh, God has spoken to Abraham? It's actually in the preceding verse and repeated elsewhere. Uh, Here it's written in verse 18. Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So here we see uh, Abraham uh, effectively discipling and leading his children is to be the means by which God is going to bring down, uh, bring about his whole redemptive plan. It's a huge, huge endeavor. And it all boils down to effective fatherly headship and effective family discipleship and training and admonition of these children that are in the household. So a very simple command with vast, vast implications. I hope you see that. Well, let's get then into philosophies of education and how this training and this admonition actually plays out in society. If here we see Abraham back in the day charged to do this, um, we then move fast forward to the time of Jesus and the era of the New Testament in which Paul was writing. At that time, uh, the Greek and Roman philosophy of education uh, had a couple hundred years of practice, and their main focus was to remove the rearing of children, the training of children from the home. They set up um, really state schools, government schools, along the lines of what we have today. Uh, the whole idea being to remove the kids from the home, to have a standardized pattern of education according to the state's principles, and that's who was going to be bringing up the children. Uh, unfortunately, and a horrible witness to the world by God's people, is the fact that at about the uh, birth of Jesus, the uh, Jews were starting to adopt that whole system of education. They were becoming envious of this Greek-Roman system. A little ironic, but we see many other cases where uh, God's people were envious, be it with kings uh, in the past as well. But uh, they didn't set up a state uh, education system. They didn't have a state in which to organize that. They were under the Romans. Uh, But they did organize the system of synagogue schools. Uh, We do know, though, uh, that Jesus did not attend these synagogue schools. The full 100% implementation of these synagogue schools wasn't to come about for uh, a longer period of time later. And we know that Jesus didn't go to these synagogue schools, that he was, in fact, trained by his parents because in John uh, 7.15, it said, how does this man, that is Jesus, know letters, having never studied? Well, and the, the Pharisees had never seen him in their, their uh, synagogue schools. So they were saying, well, where did this guy learn this stuff? He's never sat in my classroom. Uh, but the fact is, Jesus was indeed trained. He was trained by his earthly parents. He was trained by his heavenly father. He was definitely learned, just not in the environment of the Pharisaical synagogue schools. Uh, similarly, the uh, disciples that walked with Jesus, they were men of uh, unlearned reputation. They weren't great scholars, and, uh, but they were, they were trained. They were trained by working alongside their fathers in those trades, and they were then later trained by walking alongside Jesus. And even Paul, who no doubt was uh, either in young childhood or certainly in his later education, uh, trained in these very, very thoroughgoing um, you know, he said he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, so he was trained in these schools. Uh, he then would say, oh, this worldly wisdom is junk compared to what God will teach you. And as we see here, God's program is to teach people within the family. So even somebody who in his day and age was trained, I was trained in state schools, and I wish I could give up those uh, eight years of high school and a high-caliber UC Berkeley education for something much more valuable, uh, just like Paul longed for. But um, let's move then to a more recent historical example. If it's established that in the time of Abraham, he was charged to train his children. In the time of Jesus, his parents were charged to and indeed fulfilled that responsibility. What about uh, the heritage we inherit from uh, the Reformed uh, tradition from the uh, Reformation era? And a number of these resources I'm going to be reading from, quoting the Westminster Confession, uh, Directory of Worship, the PCA Directory of Worship, and in a moment, a chunk from Francis Nigel Lee's dissertation. I printed up some copies of this. 
Uh, they're available out on the info table with a blue cover sheet. So all of these you can read through later, and I do encourage you to do so, especially the Francis Nigel Lee, because it's like four pages, and I'm only going to give you chapter headings. But let's begin with the uh, Westminster Confession in chapter 21, uh, section 6. Um, it's written, God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies. So they're speaking there of three areas in which we're to do worship of God. The more solemn public assemblies, of which we're a part of now, each one by himself in secret, so that would be secret prayer, not trying to attract attention to yourself, your personal devotions, but then, as it says, in private families daily. So this is what we're speaking of here, private family daily worship. Uh, the divines, aside from the confession, also draft a number of supporting documents. Probably most of you are familiar with is the larger and shorter catechisms, but they also drafted a directory of worship. And I'm going to read two parts to their uh, introduction to this directory. They wrote, Besides the public worship in congregations, mercifully established in this land in great purity, it is expedient and necessary that secret worship of each person alone and private worship of families be pressed and set up. So again, they're saying we've, set, we've established our churches, but we need to make sure that there's private worship and there is family worship happening. Just following that, they outlined how to deal with families where this is not happening. And I want you to see, because this reveals the importance that they placed upon this endeavor. They weren't taking this lightly. This wasn't just a PS, uh, something extra to do to get extra points from your elders. They wrote, The assembly doth further require and appoint ministers and ruling elders to make diligent search and inquiry in the congregations committed to their charge, whether there be among them any family or families which used to neglect this necessary duty. So they're supposed to ask and find out, make sure everybody's doing this. And if any such family be found, the head of the family is to be admonished privately to amend his fault. And the case of continuing in this fault is to be gravely and sadly reproved by the session, after which reproof, if he is found still to be negligent in family worship, let him be for his obstinacy in such an offense, suspended and disbarred from the Lord's Supper. You see, this is the process of discipline, the exact same process that would happen if a person was uh, unrepentant in adultery or in theft or lying. The exact same process if a head of household is uh, defaulting in doing daily family worship. It's pretty significant. And just so you think this isn't just those hardcore guys back in the 1600s, our own denomination, the PCA, uh, while not talking about the discipline aspect, they certainly do carry forward this tradition of daily family worship. It's in uh, chapter 63, they say, in addition to public worship, it is the duty of each person in secret and of every family in private to worship God. Family worship, which should be observed by every family, consists in prayer, reading of scriptures, singing praises, or in some briefer form of outspoken recognition of God. So all the way up to our present day, the uh, denomination that we are attached to still places a significant value on those three spheres of worship, we're all doing the public gathering of the saints for congregational worship, and I trust that we're each doing our personal devotions, but we must not leave out that middle path, which is the crux link between those two. Well, what is then uh, family worship? If it's so important, if uh, it's been around for millennia, and it is uh, written into our founding documents that we're supposed to do it. Uh, let's define our terms then. When I did a search initially for family worship on the Internet, a number of the hits that came up were speaking of families being united in corporate worship. And that's a good thing. That's what we believe, that we shouldn't send the kids off halfway through the service. But that's not exactly what I'm talking about. I, I admit that's what I first thought family worship was before I had spent much time in a Reformed church and a family that actually did it. Uh, but that would be more appropriately called you know, family-integrated churches as we have as one of our little monikers for Dominion Covenant. But, uh, but again, that is different. Uh, it's a good thing, but it's different. But today our topic is to speak of families worshiping together when they're apart from the congregation. Well, looking at uh, family and worship then to define those terms, obviously you're attending a public worship now. You know somewhat what worship is about. It's uh, praying and singing, and here we do the sacraments when we're in public worship. But uh, the, the crux of it is actions, as I looked up and found theological definitions. The crux is actions uh, revering God. 
the Hebrew word that's most often used in the Old Testament for worship literally, literally means to prostrate oneself. So it's an action of respect to a higher authority. Uh, the other word in Hebrew translated also means to work, and uh, the implication is it means works of service. So again, the whole action element. Uh, New Testament, the primary word is akin to the first Hebrew one, and indeed is the word that we get uh, the source for prostrate. Um, so the whole bowing down aspect. Um, another Greek option means to adore or revere, and another is to respect or be pious towards. So taking these all together, we see that biblical worship is the act of serving, adoring, and revering God with the heart attitude and certainly the actions of submitting to him. Well, having established uh, the terminology um, of worship, what then is the family? And this is sort of the who. You'll see on our your outlines running through like a journalist, who, what, when, where, why, and how. So speaking of the who, let's define the family. I certainly don't want to digress into the modern interpretation of the family and how the secular world is uh, really changing this. But suffice it to say that the biblical concept of family isn't just those who are related by natural birth. Obviously, there's adoption. Uh, young people being adopted into a family, not related by any genetics, but being brought in uh, through adoption, which is a beautiful picture of how God treats us. The second important point of the biblical command here pertaining to families is, as I talked before, the idea of headship. It's not just the children, whether they be adopted or naturally born to you, but those in your household, the headship of the household. In Old Testament times, uh, if a slave was part of the household, they were expected to be being taught and raised up just like the children were. Um, I know this carried through uh, in different ways in the times of uh, slavery in America, and it's interesting that under some of the more oppressive systems, of slavery, that they actually made rules saying you're not allowed to disciple your slaves in the Christian religion, which is a horrible witness. But other places people did, and that's a beautiful thing, that in God's providence he would bring people to the light of the gospel through that. So that point of headship, whoever's in your home. So today, if you have uh, out-of-town guests visiting, they most certainly should be included in family worship as opposed to being an excuse not to have it. Oh, we'll just put it off. You know, we got people here. We don't want to interrupt the schedule or make them uncomfortable. Well, that's a perfect example, perfect reason, and certainly you should continue to have family worship with them. Uh, perhaps you have somebody renting a room in your house. Uh, they can be included as well uh, with the permission of uh, whoever their uh, family head is to make sure you're not undermining anything. But um, that all said, it's whoever's in your household, not just uh, children born to you. Well, moving on then to uh, the what. What is to be done with family worship? I already mentioned that pertaining to our definition, it's acts of service and adoration uh, devoted to Almighty God. And I also allude to the fact that here in corporate worship, we do certain things. Those all laid out in Acts 2.42 and some other references you can look into. Um, So corporate worship, though, is a little different. It's been the historic understanding of the church that we're not to do sacraments in private. Uh, At times you could get in big trouble for doing that. So uh, sacraments is off the list. Uh, but the crux of it, from what I could see, and looking back at Ephesians 6.4, that the aspects of worship as we generally think of it that are supposed to translate to the home for the families are threefold. Uh, father's leadership, that, that is important. Just like we have pastors or people studying for the ministry leading here, the father is to lead in the family. Instruction, and we'll get into the details of that instruction later. And uh, fellowship, and I use the word fellowship here Uh, because that's uh, from Acts 2.42, one of the aspects of corporate worship. And I think that is um, the underlying meaning of fathers and children. There's obviously a relationship there, and that's what fellowship is all about, is a relationship. So Ephesians 6.4 speaks of this threefold aspect uh, requiring fathers, leadership, instruction, and fellowship. And you'll notice it doesn't require uh, singing, like the directory of PCA worship mentioned. Um, So I don't think that's required. Certainly there's liberty to, and uh, we're supposed to be uh, singing praises all the time. And as earlier in Ephesians, it speaks of singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other. But I don't think that's specifically required every time in your family worship. But we'll get to some details of that in a moment. Um, well, one last aspect I left off of explaining to you in our key verse, Ephesians 6.4, is that last clause uh, of the Lord. And obviously this is critical. Um, and it, it, it teaches us what it, how it's the first part of how we're supposed to do this training and admonition. Um, we need to be pointing our kids to God 
Otherwise, we're training them to be looking to something else. So how else can this uh, telling our kids about God be done without the use of the scriptures, the scriptures that reveal God to us? So training about uh, training our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord means using the scriptures. So that's the fundamental aspect of how this um, nurturing, this training and admonition is to happen. And certainly there's lots of good resources out there. I know in my past uh, personal devotions, I've used uh, other books written by people, and it's good to learn from the wisdom of God's saints throughout the ages, but that should never be a substitute for uh, the underlying importance of the scriptures, using them to explain or enlighten some angles that we don't see, um, but not to use those as the sole focus. So scriptures, uh, training and admonition of the Lord, and the key thing that reveals the Lord to us being the scriptures and his spirit. Well, this then leads to how. How do we train and admonish in the Lord? How do we nurture and warn from the scriptures, if I've convinced you that that's so important? And here is a place where you may indeed get overwhelmed and say, well, easy for you, Mike. You're studying to be a pastor. Your whole job is to study theology and learn how to do these things. Easy for you. How am I supposed to do that? Or look to Pastor Kaiser. He's been doing this for 40 years. He's the expert. He's got all these degrees. And uh, I, I could never do anything like him. But uh, since I'm fairly certain that you're on board concerning the male leadership and the importance of the scriptures, let's spend a bit more time on the issue of how so you don't feel overwhelmed and thinking, oh, woe is me, I could never uh, do what they do. Which would be ironic because I don't do anything that spectacular. So. But uh, first, remember that teaching is not just a lecture. In scripture, there's many different ways that Jesus taught. Um, and uh, it came to my mind, well, one example where he just sat everybody down and talked to him was uh, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Well, look at that in detail. He didn't actually have them sit down and him talk. He sat down and they listened. So the whole pattern, we think, okay, kids, sit down. We're going to have you know, an important teaching on Scripture. That is uh, only a very small piece of how Jesus taught. He conversed with them. He taught them in parables, giving them pictures uh, to uh, impress upon them how these things were to happen. He asked them questions. Um, uh, he showed them, uh, just as his father in heaven had showed him. Uh, in the Old Testament, we see examples, uh, the very purpose for uh, the Passover and for the stones at Gilgal was so that the kids would see this thing and say, hey, Grandpa, what, what's up here? Why did this happen? Tell me the story. And then they would have the occasion to instruct. So uh, that brings in a variety of teaching methods. You don't just have to think, okay, I've got to prepare my 20-minute spiel and read this out and sound like I know what I'm talking about. But you can use these different picture methods and the walking alongside and the question and answer, uh, the whole catechism uh, that's been developed throughout the history of the church in order to ask a question and trigger a response. Well, hopefully you can ask them questions that gets them curious so they ask you back and it can become that dialogue. So I hope you see and uh, therefore aren't intimidated by having to do uh, a lecture or a more formal instructing format. Well, second, the fact that you're not and I'm not 100% able to do this just right off the bat, 100% success, is actually a good thing. Rather than seeing this as a downside, I want you to see this as a plus because it provides a great opportunity to show Christian humility, to efface our pride, and to set the example of being an eager, eager learner. Uh, I'm sure you don't want your children to grow up thinking, well, if I don't know how to do it right off the bat, I'm not even going to try. Uh, if I can't be an expert, there's no use uh, giving it a shot. I'll just stick with what I'm good at. No doubt you want your kids to learn to persevere, to try new things, to learn to grow and eventually become proficient at what God has gifted them at. And so what better way to have that happen than by them seeing you struggle and learn and you know they ask you a question you don't know how to answer. Hey, son, I'll come back with that tomorrow. And them seeing you work through this process is the very way in which they will be shown how to uh, push through the difficulties, how to learn new skills, and how to end up being successful in the end. The Christian life, indeed, is a long-distance race, and we have to learn to strive for mastery. You can't just give up on the first lap and say, oh, that was too tough. Uh, somebody else can do this. I'll, I'll hire them. They can do a better job uh, than I can. No, proficiency doesn't come instantaneously, and uh, I think that's by design. That's the way God has made it, so we'll, we will uh, persevere and learn perseverance. And this leads to my third point, then, under the how, which is that we need to be men of prayer. I uh, hope you know, and we'll see here. Let's see, verse 18 in chapter 6. 
where Paul says, Pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. It's no coincidence, I don't think, that Paul makes this statement about the importance of prayer. Just as, as you're familiar there in Ephesians 6, he talks about spiritual warfare and the weapons of proper battle in spiritual warfare. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he puts this uh, discussion of spiritual warfare just after his discussion of family relationships. Uh, do not think that the, the rulers of the darkness of this age uh, have no interest in putting a wedge between uh, husbands and wives. Hence, Paul needs to encourage you how to have proper relationship between husbands and wives. Do not think that the um, spiritual hosts of wickedness don't care about there being uh, tension between uh, fathers and their children. He most certainly wants there to be because that is how he will cut off the promises that God spoke to about, spoke of to Abraham back in Genesis 18 that we read. And also don't think that you can stand against these uh, attacks without the proper weapons, every single one of the proper weapons that Paul lays out there, uh, prayer being crucial among them. And I think this is really uh, the heart of it because, as I've said, uh, I don't want to merely add something to your to-do list. And I have to confess that I am good at to-do lists, uh, having uh, been brought up in a disciplined family where you know, we just set a goal and you go for it, uh, the kind of person that you give me a, a how-to book and a couple alarms on my Palm Pilot and just give me some time and we'll get it done. But in fact, that's a recipe for failure. And I've had many failures in my life by trusting in these methods because if the spirit is not in it, it most certainly will lead to failure despite the best of our human efforts. And in that vein, I recall when I was in college, I thought, hey, I want to learn guitar. It would be pretty cool. And a friend of a friend offered to teach me $10 a lesson, uh, which is a great deal, obviously. And he went out with me. We bought a used guitar and a capo. I didn't even know what a capo was. And, um, and he started giving me lessons. Well, pretty soon, at each of those twice-weekly lessons, he realized I wasn't practicing enough in between. So we moved it to once a week. And pretty soon, that became uh, like every other week. And pretty soon, it was nothing because I wasn't spending the time practicing. It was not being diligent and I was not uh, up to the task at that point. And it was years later, I was at a music store in Seattle and saw this uh, Easy Steps to Classical Guitar. I was like, oh, there you go. That'll lay it out for me. Uh, I'm disciplined. I can learn this myself. Well, sure enough, after a couple of weeks, the book and the guitar were gathering dust. In. And all the time I lived at the Kaiser's house, it was sitting at my bed. And it was only at the end of that time that I started practicing a little more. Because now I have a real use for practicing guitar. I want to be able to to lead people in worship, lead my family in worship. And so, again, unless the Spirit is in it, the best of our steps are not going to be sufficient for achieving this. And um, all this thought of depending on my own strength was because I thought I had success in the past at doing that. Uh, the fact that I learned how to bake and that I was successful in high school and college, the fact that I was able to do two long hikes of you know, 3,000 miles each, I thought, hey, I was able to do that, I can do this. But the fact is, as I look back in hindsight, that God had graciously given me that scholastic ability in high school. That wasn't my own invention. He had given me good teachers and the desire to learn the task of baking. He had given me the physical strength to do these long hikes. It wasn't something I conjured up myself. So it's God's gifting and his empowering that ultimately bring us through to the end. So we need to be looking to God for that desire. Indeed, it starts with a desire to train our children, a desire to have their hearts turn to us and uh, our hearts turn to them, or else it's going to end up being a New Year's resolution. And you know the vast majority, what is it, statistically 90% of New Year's resolutions are done with by like January 15th. And 98% of them are done by June 1st. So uh, we need to persevere in this, and it doesn't come by man's method. Certainly making a list, setting a goal is a good thing, but relying on your strength, your own strength, is not because otherwise we're going to end up living mundane lives that testify to the failure of our power as opposed to the success of God's power. Well, how often must it be done? And here I think the often quoted homeschoolers verse, their theme verse, Deuteronomy 6 7, is helpful. And that reads, as you're no doubt familiar, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down. And when you rise up and there's two approaches that interpreters have taken to this. The first is to say that when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up means all the time. 
what time of the day, what activity of the day doesn't fit into that. So we're supposed to have a, a, a lifestyle of worship and of leading our families. Uh, the other interpretation takes the when you lie down and when you rise up to mean evening and morning, and hence twice daily family worship. And I think the truth lies in the convergence of both of those principles. Uh, again, our whole lifestyle should be one of discipling our children, a whole lifestyle of worship. There's nothing that comes up through the, throughout the day that isn't a good teaching example, either say what to do or what not to do, but at the same time to make it a goal and uh, succeed in that goal of having a fixed time of worship with our families morning and evening on top of that whole lifestyle of worship is important. And again, it's what the historic church has taken this to mean. And it is, as I impressed upon you, the whole means by which God will raise up godly families. And I ask you, do you check the weather uh, every morning and evening to see what the road conditions are going to be like this time of year? Do you check the news or your favorite blog multiple times a day to see uh, what's happening in the world just so you can be up to date? And so we need to have um, the whole activity of being uh, imbued in God's word with our families. Again, not just by ourselves, but with our families, bringing our hearts together needs to happen as frequently as we do any of those other mundane activities. It's easy for us to speak uh, deprecatingly of those Sunday morning Christians who only think of God once a week during their merely 60-minute-a-day a uh, worship services. And here we come for 90 minutes, so we're really ahead. Uh, so it's easy to think of these people who just do it once a week. But are we prone to doing the same things if we're only doing uh, the worship uh, as anything but our own personal devotions once a week? And so hence that importance of frequency. Um, and here I think it's not just frequency within the day, the morning and evening that I'm mentioning to you, but the frequency throughout the week. Uh, they not just be on Sunday, not just be on Saturday night, uh, not just be on Sunday evening as we're discussing the sermon. So those are ways to continue it throughout the week. But every day, it takes that diligence. Uh, what uh, athlete, what aspiring musician would ever think that they were going to learn a new skill if they just, you know, I'm going to go uh, shoot 100 hoops on Monday and then come out the next Monday. You're not going to be any better at it. It's got to be uh, repetitive. It's got to be day-to-day. And that is God's wisdom in prescribing daily family worship is the repetition that it become part of our lifestyle. Uh, well, just so you don't think that this is uh, something archaic back when people were really uh, gung-ho about religion back in the time of the Reformation, there's some much more recent resources, and I see an interesting trend here. Perhaps we're on the cusp of a, a revival, indeed, as this is becoming more important in the church. Uh, two things I'll mention here, two resources. One is a doctoral dissertation by Francis Nigel Lee, a guy with 20 different degrees behind his name. So this is uh, his work for one of them. And it was titled, Daily Family Worship, Household Devotions Each Morning and Evening as a Chief Means of Church Revival. And I admit I did not read all 445 pages of it, uh, but just in looking at his table of contents, as well as um, there's four pages that I put out on the table there that have uh, his family's heritage, how they did it when he was young, as well as some suggestions for somebody uh, trying to get this going. So you can read that. But just looking at his table of contents, he has chapters on daily family worship from Adam to Noah, from uh, Shem to Malachi, and then later Chrysostom to Luther, the Puritans, Matthew Henry, 1700 to 2000, when he published it. So he sees this as being something uh, throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of the Bible, and all the way up to our modern time. And he definitely sees it as having biblical merit for us. Uh, The second resource, and these are footnoted on your um, outline, so you can look them up later, uh, is a new book by uh, Donald Whitney. And that uh, name might be familiar because he was the main teacher at a conference over at Omaha Bible Church in October. I'd never heard of him before we were uh, poaching the design of their websites for our own uh, conference announcements. But a uh, respected author, written a lot of uh, books, and is a uh, model to um, many people through that. His, uh, one of his new books is titled Family Worship in the Bible, in History, and in Your Home. And he deals with the biblical and historical evidence, as all these other resources have done, as well as uh, from reviews I read, having a very helpful section on how this all pertains to singles and also to single parent households. So if that um, is some people you know, please do point them in this direction. It's been uh, highly recommended and endorsed by a bunch of big name people like Albert Moeller and Ted Tripp and Bodie Bauckham. And so um, hopefully we can trust their opinion. I did not read the book, I have to admit. 
found out about it like on Friday. But uh, no time to order it from Amazon. So again, uh, perhaps we're on the, the cutting edge of a new revival here. And, and praise God for bringing this in, uh, to our attention and burdening the hearts of many people throughout uh, his church with it. Well, if we're convinced then of the necessity for daily, and I think ideally twice daily, and the necessity for every single day, the last part of that time frame is how long each day. And I did not see anything in Scripture as to, well, it's got to be you know, half of an hour or an hour or something along that lines. Um, different historical resources talk about 20 minutes, 40 minutes. You all heard Kevin Swanson at the conference uh, speak of his dad was very diligent in 40 minutes every morning. He must have had a military background because it sounded pretty precise. Um, but uh, I don't see that in Scripture. Uh, but I think whatever it takes to effectively, without droning on and getting boring and you know, whatever, meeting the needs of your family is primary. So whatever it takes to do that reading of Scripture, that um, teaching of Scripture to apply it to their lives, uh, to do some singing, if that is how you can enforce the Scripture, to bring in those parts. If it takes 15 minutes, um, that's great. And if it's a 45-minute conversation that goes on after that, hopefully you can make the time to do that. And being sensitive to the Spirit, I think, is the crucial thing, that we not impose our own, well, I've only got half an hour. Um, you know, perhaps you may have to cut it off because you've got to leave breakfast and get to work and say, hey, uh, my lovely daughter, I'll call you at lunch and we'll think about an answer to that. So paying attention to their questions and not cutting something off, saying, oh, time's up, got to go, um, but being sensitive to your family's needs. Well, to summarize then uh, the ground that we have covered, uh, just a few points here. First, that fathers are uh, given a specific responsibility to lead and to disciple their families. Uh, second, that you should not provoke your children. Uh, that is, do not be harsh, uh, prodding, abrasive, impatient, or severe. Thirdly, instead, you should be kindly, lovingly, and tenderly nourishing them um, and instructing them and warning them based on the teachings of Scripture. And then this nurturing should be done as a family in the spirit of worship and should involve teaching and applying the Scriptures. And importantly, it should be frequent. From my experience uh, on my long-distance hikes and climbing mountains, I knew, know full well that a long journey or a high peak uh, doesn't get done in one leap and a bound. Uh, it's many, many steps. But a long journey like that never gets done unless you take a first step. And you're never going to have a second or a third step unless you take that first step and you keep going. So for those of you who have never uh, attempted this goal, I impress upon you, just starting is a major thing. Telling people, hey, I'm going to have this as a goal. Having that as accountability so that they know you're starting. And then a second step, a third step, and on and on. Also, for those who have already started, I know from my experiences that a long journey uh, has challenges and surprises in the middle. Uh, we can never know exactly what twists and turns things are going to take. So I encourage you, those, who, those of you who have gotten into a pattern, to be flexible to the Spirit's leading, to new resources you're learning, to not think, oh, this is the way I've been doing it for five years or five months, whatever the case may be, uh, but to be open to uh, what Scripture teaches as to how this is to be done. Uh, we, of course, are to be uh, primarily looking to the traditions of God taught through Scripture and not the traditions of men. So be discerning in that aspect. And finally, to those of us who are in the middle of it, and to those of you who have been doing it a long time, I encourage you to uh, hold fast with endurance. And don't be bogged down in the details, uh, but always be reminded of the goal and the journey. It's a long journey. This is never done. I don't think it's entirely done even when your kids are out of the home because you'll have the opportunity to be having them over for family occasions. You have um, uh, the role as grandparents. So this is a long-term task. Um, but family worship has to become a part of our lifestyle. I think this is how we get beyond all the details and the, well, am I supposed to do this? Is it 15 minutes, 30 minutes? Is that it has to be a lifestyle uh, thing. It has to become as natural as getting your, your car keys and your cup of coffee on the way uh, out of the house to go to work. It has to be as natural as doing the dishes every night after dinner. It can't be something tacked on. It has to be fundamental to your day. It has to be something you look forward to, something that the day is just something was wrong here. We didn't do it. It has to be a part of your life. And this uh, it becoming part of your lifestyle is what happens when we're living in the face of God, Coram Deo. When we see him face to face someday, we will have to answer to him for how we conducted our families. And think of it this way. Uh, Jesus, who is our primary example, he uh, discipled 12, right? 
well, you don't have to disciple the whole world. You just have to disciple your children. And other than one family who has uh, more than 12 children, all the rest of you got it easy compared to him. So um, if you think it's intimidating to think, well, wait a second, Jesus, you're telling me to be like Jesus, and he discipled 12 men who changed the whole world. Well, does that encourage you? Uh, does that overwhelm you? Or do you think that's unrealistic? And in fact, it should discourage you. It should seem absurdly unrealistic if you're going to try and do this in your own strength uh, because you will fail as we've discussed and it all comes back to not relying on the strength that the world attempts at but relying on the strength of God in our weakness his strength is made manifest and uh, we do need to be uh, down on our knees and humbly asking God to turn our hearts to our children our children's hearts to us just as he has graciously turned our hearts to him our heavenly father Uh, that he would give us uh, the wisdom to teach them, a schedule to have the time uh, to do this, and uh, that this really is the heart of the gospel, that through Jesus all things are possible, things we can't do, foremost uh, pleasing God, and then all the things that as Christians are part of pleasing God, uh, that he graciously provides his spirit so that we can do it. And indeed this is a serious business, uh, raising children, discipling them, leading family worship, being that spiritual example to them. But uh, praise God that he has given this task to those uh, to whom it should matter the most, uh, their parents. And uh, as such, you cannot shirk this responsibility. You certainly can't avoid this duty. We're all going to lead our families one way or another. We're going to disciple our families uh, one way or another. Uh, Some will disciple our families well, and uh, some will disciple them poorly. Some will disciple them in righteousness, some will disciple them in worldliness. Uh, some will teach them the ways of the true and living Lord. And some will teach them in the ways of a false Lord. But I proclaim for my family and I pray for you as well that this day we would serve the true Yahweh. Father in heaven, I lift these people up to you. We want to please you and we want our families to glorify you. But we can be proud and we can be ignorant and lazy. So I ask you to empower us all with your spirit. And by the Holy Spirit's strength, we would obey your commands. By the Holy Spirit's strength, we would worship you as we ought. By the Holy Spirit's strength, our children will grow up to honor you and raise up their children to honor you as well. I thank you for the work that you have done in each of the families here, that you've led many of the fathers already to establish this pattern, this uh, life principle of regular family worship. May you bless them for their faithfulness and give them the wisdom to continue the path set before them. Uh, For those fathers who have been negligent or haphazard or just never really thought about this, may you see fit to light a fire in them to fulfill this high calling. May we all be brothers to one another and encourage each other and speak the truth and love growing up into Jesus our head in his name we pray